Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history lying underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is the movie The Northman. Which means I'm talking about Vikings. This isn't going to be one of these ones where it kind of goes all the way to ancient Babylon. No, Vikings. And Vikings is a big topic, and I've talked a bit about them in the past, but... Hey, if I can't talk about Vikings in a movie called The Northman, then when can I? So this film, Robert Eggers is the overall director. He's actually directed two other highly regarded, very small budget movies. One's called The Witch and the other one is called The Lighthouse. And this is called The Northman, which tells me that he likes using the definitive article followed by one word. No Star Wars Episode 1, colon, The Phantom Menace for him. <laughs> he likes to keep it short. The other two films are very much horror movies, sort of psychological horror movies rather than jumping out and stabbing people type horror movies. This one has elements of that. This is full-blooded. It's, I presume, an R-rated in America. It's rated 15 here in the UK. I'm going to say it's the single most brutal, bloody, adult, 15-rated movie I've probably ever seen. I wouldn't have been surprised if it ended up being given the higher certification of 18 rating. So because of that, I'm going to sort of say right now, absolutely unsuitable for children. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? What's interesting is... There is no bad language in this film. Everything, the reason why it gets its rating is for the colossal amounts of violence and sex and nudity and sexual violence. And I just, oh, it is full-blooded in every sense of the, of the phrase. So here is the overview and why you might compare it to something else. So this movie is about this prince called Amleth. And at the beginning, he's a boy, let's say sort of 12 years old. And his father has just come back from a successful campaign. And there's feasting and carousing. And the boy is sort of brought to the bosom of his father. And lots of scenes ensue. But the father realizes that he's been wounded in battle and he's only going to last so long. So it's time to instill the feelings of the great warrior in the sun. 
And so they have this sort of spiritual festival, the two of them and this kind of shaman slash sort of the fool of the court played by Willem Dafoe, who was one of the principal leads in The Lighthouse. Eggers clearly likes Dafoe, and he's great in the limited amount of screen time he has. They come out of this thing, they're ready to go back home, when lo and behold, this isn't a huge spoiler, this all happens in like the first 10-15 minutes, the king is betrayed by his own brother, and he is killed, and then the brother searches for his nephew to sort of end the family line, and the boy manages to escape, cutting off the nose of one of the warriors who's turned on his family, and jumps into a boat and sort of repeats over and over again, I will avenge you, father, I will save you, mother, I will kill you, Fjolnir. I will avenge you, father! I will save you, mother! I will kill you, Fjolnir! who's the name of the brother, or the uncle, from his perspective. So, I don't know if Greg's going to put in that little sound bite here. It's a, it's a cool one. It's And then we fast forward some years later, and he is now grown into Alexander Skarsgård, who was ripped in the movie Tarzan. Which did okay. It wasn't a big hit, and it wasn't sort of critically acclaimed. But he got into very good shape for that, and he's always sort of done well. Don't forget, one of his first ever roles was as one of the kind of background models in Zoolander. However, what really brought everybody to his attention was he played Eric Northman. There, can you spot a theme here? Who was a vampire in the TV series True Blood, and he was a Viking who had been bitten by a vampire and is now, a thousand years later, is in modern-day America. So, I guess he's played a Viking before, but he kind of hasn't. We now see him as a berserker warrior. Lots more on all the history stuff in a bit. He does an amazing moment. I mean, I don't know how they did this. It doesn't look CGI, but clearly they didn't do it the way it looks in the movie. They are attacking this little fortification in the land of the Rus. More on that in a bit too. And this guy from behind the palisade throws a spear at Alexander Skarsgård, who plucks it out of the air, spins round, throws it, and kills the guy who'd sent it in his direction in the first place. That is an awesome moment of action. It is one of these things where, never seen that before, I'm very pleased to have seen that on screen, wow, great. And so he sets on on this journey of revenge to hunt down the uncle and obviously save his mother and so on and so forth. I want to avenge you, father. I want to save you, mother. I won't kill you, Fjolnir. I won't go into any more detail, but when people have compared this to Gladiator, at the time I thought, knowing Egger's smaller movies in the past and sort of seeing the trailer, it's like, hey, the trailer looks great. But this clearly isn't Gladiator. It doesn't have the same kind of budget as Gladiator. And it has had a budget of $90 million, which is a lot of money for something that's not related to a franchise or a book or anything like that. Certainly that's not a superhero. So we'll, we'll, at the time of recording, the figures have come in just at the, at the beginning. It doesn't look like it's been a massive hit. But more on that, I keep saying more on this later, more on this later. But let's just sort of, so when people say Gladiator, the great thing about Gladiator is you could sort of put it into one sentence. The general who became the slave 
the slave who defied an empire. You get the entire character arc in one sentence, and it's kind of the same thing here. The prince who became a warrior outcast, who became a slave, who comes back for revenge sort of thing. In that respect, yes, it's like Gladiator, but tonally, visually, and budgetarily, very, very different. Exactly what it's like. It's, it reminded me a bit of The Revenant. I don't know if you've seen the Leonardo DiCaprio movie there, which he, he won the Oscar for, and quite rightly too. It was a, a sort of a brutal thing. It's, it's about man versus nature. Everybody looks cold and miserable throughout it, which is kind of what Northman does. It isn't a funny film. There aren't any gags in it or anything like this. This is full-on serious. Now, Amleth is the name of the prince. This is the person who Skarsgård plays. And the key thing is, there is an epic saga, a, a, a sort of poem, medieval poem, from Scandinavia about Amleth. And if some of this sounds vaguely familiar, it's the story of Amleth that is considered the foundation for the story of Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. And seeing that's considered Shakespeare's greatest play, that does tell you that this is a pretty good cracking story to begin with. Oh, don't forget Hamlet is set in Denmark, Scandinavia. You know, something's rotten in Denmark. So, Yes, in terms of history, none of what you've seen on screen happened. But it's absolutely in the style of the epic sagas, particularly from Iceland. And indeed, most of the action happens in Iceland. And there can be no doubt by the time you've finished watching it that Iceland is a cold and beautiful and stark place, a place of raw nature and really, really cold and windy. Um, I wouldn't want to live there. I'm sure the people there are lovely. They have a disproportionate amount of strong men in world history. So Hathor Bjornsson, wow, he's big and scary and very, very strong. He's literally been the world's strongest man. But for such a tiny population, they've had disproportionately a large amount of the world's strongest mans. Mans, men's? What are sorry, men? Men! <laughs> Yeah, anyway, and they are all descendants of Viking settlers. All makes complete sense there. So the film, what I want to say is, if the initial figures are right and people aren't exactly flooding to it, it is getting nothing but five-star reviews. Now, I would perhaps put it more at four and a half stars, not because it does anything wrong. Everybody in this film 100% commits, and as soon as somebody does kind of wink into the camera, or sort of, you've got somebody who isn't particularly sort of like feeling it, the whole thing would have fallen to pieces. Everybody needs to take this 100% serious and really go for it, for it to work. Nicole Kidman is the mother. This is slightly ironic, because in Big Little Lies, she played the wife of Alexander Skarsgård, and there she is being his mother, and she's great in it to be i don't want to say too much about her role but as the movie progresses you get to see her more and more in a meaty interesting multi-layered role really fascinating stuff from her skarsgård is built like a tank in this i've like i said i've seen him big before in things like tarzan but he went to the gym a lot for this film and wow i don't know what those bits on the top of your shoulders are that kind of are to the side of your neck on either side. But big, 
muscular people who really work out, the bodybuilders, manage to grow that part of their body, and his is huge. Clearly, the amount of effort Mr. Skarsgård had to put into this, it, it paid off. And the thing is, though, everybody can look at this movie and go, this is my calling card. I mean, not that someone like Nicole Kidman needs a calling card, but it's like, look, this is what I can do when I'm given a good script and a good director and a good story. I can perform like this. It is just great. The other, Anya Taylor-Joy, who I talked a bit about in The Queen's Gambit, and I said, I can't wait to see more exciting stuff that she can do. And, you know, she, she was in Emma full stop, for example, as Emma. I've always thought that she's a really interesting actress who picks really interesting roles. And in this, she plays Olga, she is a Rus, she is Slavic, and she is a slave, like Skarsgård, and she's some sort of kind of pagan woman. And at one point she says, you can break men's bodies, I can break men's minds. Your strength breaks men's bones. Ah! I have the cunning to break their minds. She is amazing in this. There is a scene, I don't want to go into details, and also I don't want to offend anybody, where it looks like she is going to have the Lord of the Land as a slave girl. She wasn't going to have any options in this, you know, the whole thing about consent goes out the window, and obviously is an incredibly bad thing. And her visceral response to this, for the record, nothing happens, and nothing happens because of her response. It is just awesome what she does and the way she acts and i don't know if everybody's having the time of their life on set like i say there are times when people just look cold but everybody is giving it their all again early on when i said you see him as a as a berserker the way it's introduced is you've got all these men covered in furs and there is some kind of sort of shaman whipping them up into a sort of animalistic frenzy and this is done in rain and everybody's basically wearing loincloths so then everybody's shirtless and they might have pelts on them and it just looks feral and animalistic and 100% real rather than they've just finished their latte they've taken off their coat and now they're sort of squatting down after sort of like tucking away their iPhone and then doing this scene you believe you're looking at, at the past so the next thing I'm going to say is if all this sounds cool, do not make the mistake of saying, you know, oh, do you know what, I'll wait for it to appear on Netflix or something like that. At the same time, you sort of say, oh, why is the cinema full of superhero movies? Why don't they make things like The Godfather anymore and blah, blah, blah. This is why. OK, this is this is a proper grown up movie. And. If nobody goes to see it, what you're telling the studios is nobody wants to see proper grown-up movies, and the ones that keep making more than a billion dollars are the superhero movies. So, if this sounds interesting, buy a ticket. Tell the cinemas that you want more of this kind of stuff. And yeah, this looks amazing on the big screen. If you end up seeing it on a, a big plasma screen in, in your home, you'll get the idea. But just sort of being immersed in it in a cinema, wow, you, you just gotta, okay? And this in a way reminds me of a film that came out last year. Now, this was at a time when sort of lockdowns were sort of up and down and so on and so forth, and therefore I was reticent like other people. But Ridley Scott, the man who directed Gladiator, as well as other classics like Alien and Blade Runner, etc., 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 you know, Thelma and Louise, The Martian, you know, he's made a lot of good films. He made The Last Duel. And 
This is Adam Driver and Mr. Jason Bourne himself, Matt Damon, and this is based on a real bit of history. And the attention to detail, it's medieval era, it's in the late 1300s, and it's kind of like Rashomon. Now, if you don't know Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa in the 1950s, this was his calling card. Basically, there is an attack on a woman. This is all set in feudal Japan, and you see the same basic story happen from three different people's point of view. And so it's different. People act in different ways. In one occasion, somebody might be scared. In the other situation, they come across as very aggressive. And at no point does Kurosawa say, this is the right one. What he's saying to you is truth is very much from a matter of point of view. It's not that people are deliberately lying, but people only have a limited amount of information. So A can sometimes look like B. And 10 out of 10 to Akira Kurosawa. This is yet again another example of why he is a genius, because, you know, this sort of broke the rules of, of filmmaking or storytelling, and it created a whole new genre. And there are a number of things out there that are kind of Rashomon-esque. Last Jewel is an example of this. And so you get like in Russia, on three different points of view of why we end up at a duel. Are people, you know, who do you think's right or wrong? There is a slight flaw in it that when we finally get to the woman's story, it's sort of like, this is the truth according to blah, this is the truth according to blah, and then when it comes to her, it goes, this is the truth, and then it fades away, and it, for a second you see true. So in other words, this is what really happened. So that's a little bit of spoon feeding. But again, a bit like the Northman, a lot of money was spent on this, a lot of commitment was done, everybody is great in their roles, even Ben Affleck sort of playing this kind of foppish weirdo. In each retelling, he kind of gets weirder and weirder and in, in a good way, by the way, not in a bad way. And yeah, it's a great, great film. But I didn't get a chance to see it. It was, like I say, it was more to do with pandemic rather than the lack of will. I love my history movies. But what I noticed was that just six weeks after it had been released in the cinema, there it was on Disney+. And nobody was talking about it. This is a major, over a hundred million dollar production starring big movie stars, directed by, uh, you know, one of the guys who's considered one of the classic film directors. It was out less than two months ago in the cinema. Why isn't Disney Plus plugging it? Or, you know, loads of people talking about it on Twitter. And so, look, is The Last Jewel as good as Gladiator? No, no, it isn't. But it is still very good, and it's just great to see an adult movie where it isn't pandering to the kids, where the violence isn't bloodless to show you the horrors of hand-to-hand -hand combat in the medieval world. And I don't want the Northman to be the same, where everybody who saw it went, that's amazing, but not enough people saw it. So please, this is sort of a rallying cry, go and see it in the cinema. And if you end up seeing it on Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever, and go, do you know what, that was really good. I wish I'd seen that in the cinema. Well, don't blame me if there's sort of like a, I don't know, a Sonic the Hedgehog 5 or a Spider-Man 27 or whatever. Look, I do like these films, but I do, I would really, I don't want all of adult drama to just be TV shows. Thank you very much. So my little diatribe is done now. And what I wanted to sort of like move on is clearly in most movies set in a historical era, they get historical experts to give them advice. And there has to be an understanding and expectation. If we are talking about even somebody famous like Julius Caesar, we actually have very little evidence about what he did day to day. You know, we know the big stuff, but we don't know what his favorite food was, for example, and virtually every single conversation he ever had 
has been lost to the mists of time. But that can't work in a movie. We have to put words into these people's mouths. So there is an expectation, there is a frustration, if you like, from these historians who help these movies, that they can tell whether people are trying to take it seriously or not. For further information about where I just want to tell a great story, I want to put the visuals up on the screen, and I don't really care about the history, but it is history, is Braveheart. Done a whole episode on that, have a listen to it. I have a lot of fun dismantling it. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And the same thing with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. You get the idea. But here, to give you an idea, one of the first things where I thought, oh my goodness, they, they've done their research, is with the boats. I've been to the Gokstad Museum in Norway, which is a place where they have multiple preserved thousand-year-old Viking longships. It's amazing what they've been able to discover in these freezing lakes. And yes, clearly, the people who made this movie have either been there before or looked at lots of pictures, and they built boats the way that the Vikings did. I feel obliged at this point to say, because I've said it before, seeing this is all about Vikings in inverted commas. Vikings is a term meaning wanderer. Nobody was ever actually a Viking. You might have been Norwegian, or you might have come from Helsinki, or whatever. <laughs> Oh, sorry, not hell-seeking, great Re Reykjavik. Finland, very much not Scandinavian. They are part of the Nordics and get very angry when they're lumped together. I'm terribly sorry to any Finnish listeners. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But again, for a country with such a small population, not strong men, but Formula One drivers. How 
good are your roads in Finland that you <laughs> that you have so many Formula One drivers and rally drivers as well? Well done. Put a fin behind a wheel. Apparently they know how to go. Anyway, moving on. So the fact of the matter is nobody was actually a Viking. During the rest of the year, they might have spent their time just being farmers and things like that. So, yeah. Viking is a term used by everybody else. It is also an example of where that phrase, history is written by the winners, is wrong. In the case of both the Mongols and the Vikings, they were largely illiterate populations, and therefore what we learnt about them is what everybody else thought of them, and particularly in the case of the Vikings, they were the ones who were being hit over the head with battle axes and having their women sold into slavery. So yeah, it isn't very positive about them. So the boats were the first sign, but then I realised the textiles, maybe a bit bright, but the textiles, I recognise some of the patterning and it's like, again, the Gokstak Museum has actual examples of Viking era textiles in them. And the helmets as well. If you've seen it, you might go, oh, they kind of look like Sutton Who. Yeah, because the Anglo-Saxons came from these areas. Angles, Jutes and Saxons. Jutes come from Jutland, which is another area of the coastal region of Denmark. So there is a huge connection between the Anglo-Saxon pagans and the Vikings. Obviously, both of them eventually got Christianized, but at different times. But for example, Odin, you've all heard of Odin. He was called Woden in Anglo-Saxon England. So yeah, and England means lands of the Angles. So huge connections there between those two societies. And therefore, they had this very similar well, military tactics and arms and armor and so on and so forth. But the other thing they had is the turtle brooches. You'll see this a lot in the movies. These sort of semicircular, almost look like tiny gold, like bra cups, okay? And they're over the sort of the top of the shoulder. And those were absolutely the clasping mechanism they did to attach cloaks or sometimes wrap cowls around them and things like that. So the metallurgy is right. The textiles is right. The the housing with these kind of like half timber, they, they almost look like they sort of dug it into the ground, covered with this peat. Rather than tiling, they got like peat over the roofs. And that's exactly what they had in these long houses in one kind of slightly hallucinatory dreamlike sequence, he drops into a barrow and fights this kind of legendary, and clearly this didn't happen, but he fights a dead warrior for his sword. And if you look closely, they're doing that. First of all, he has to dig into the mound and they're doing this on what is clearly a buried ship. And they're sort of like fighting over a sword, which is absolutely designed to, to look like a sort of Scandinavian type sword. In a moment, I'll tell you about the blade, which is slightly wrong. And they're doing this in this kind of chamber on top of this boat, the ship. And the thing about that chamber is it is too big, but you know, it's a dream sequence where he's fighting basically a skeleton warrior. But at the same time, that is exactly, if you look at the Sutton Who burial, that's exactly what it is. You've got this sort of like little tent-like bit on the top and then the, the buried ship in a mound. This is exactly how some Scandinavian type peoples would deal with their dead. Then there was a moment where you see a woman's head pop up from the bottom of the screen. She goes, I see my family. And then her head disappears and she comes up again. And at that point, I turned to my friend who I went to see the movie with and went, oh my God, we're about to see a woman be sacrificed. Because that scene is beat for beat the description of a Viking burial and sacrifice of a slave girl that a Muslim traveler had saw 
in the land of the Rus, which you remember if I went all the way back at the beginning, they said land of the Rus, so land of the Rus. And so we actually have a very graphic, very disturbing depiction of the slaughter of this slave girl who's clearly sort of like on some sort of like hallucinogen or, or, or drunk or something because she's, she seems to be happy about being killed. And also they decapitate a horse as well. So animal cruelty, human sacrifice, this was something that we know firsthand the Vikings actually did and it is being portrayed in an accurate way in this movie very much beating the Kirk Douglas movie, The Vikings, from way back in the 1950s. And there are no horned helmets in this. There is one person, admittedly, with a kind of Iron Age style helm. He is not fighting. It's obviously there for ritual purposes. It's sort of shamanistic. And I was just blown away. This wasn't just the fact, any movie that has a historian on it, that historian is good. The question is how much are they going to listen to the historian and on this occasion every step of the way they wanted to make this feel like it really was happening a thousand years ago and so what i would say is that would a viking have recognized every moment in this film no but they would have absolutely recognized the society and how everything was laid out now briefly back to the sword blade it's got this kind of ripple effect on it that's damascus steel that would not have been forged in scandinavia that's not to say that no damascus steel has ever been found in scandinavia it has but they didn't forge that way and this kind of rippling effect these sort of like darker swirls inside the sort of steel blade make it particularly strong damascus steel from round about 800 AD to round about 1600 AD was basically the, the best blades in the, in the world. Now, exaggeration, you could throw a silk scarf up in the air, hold the sword out and it would cut it in two. That is just impossible in terms of physics, but you get the idea, very sharp. It was actually from these carbon impurities that they were accidentally creating something that's only been able to be recreated with modern forging techniques. So I've had some people say, oh, Damascus, the art of Damascus steel isn't lost. We can do it today. Yeah, well, clearly we didn't, we do it today in a very different way to how they did it a thousand years ago. So how they did it exactly a thousand years ago, I don't know, that's the way it goes. I just love the attention to detail in this movie. But then, as I keep mentioning, the land of the Rus. What am I talking about? Well, as I mentioned briefly in the past, and indeed in my Ukraine episode, the city of Kiev was actually founded as a, as a settlement for trading by the Vikings, basically. And over generations, they started marrying into local populations. So you get the first Grand Prince of Kiev, known as Vladimir. Now, clearly, that is not a Scandinavian name. But, you know, if you go back to his grandfather, they would have had Scandinavian names. And so, yes, what they're showing is, I mean, this is the weird thing. It was released over Easter weekend, and there's a number of negative comments about Christianity. That'll be fine, you know, if you're not watching on Easter weekend. But, I mean, they were saying, you know, the Christians, they pray to a corpse god, which, if you don't understand Christianity as a pagan, kind of right. And the other thing is we see fighting going on in what is clearly modern-day Ukraine, and these berserkers... They attack with all the ferocity that you'd expect a bunch of Vikings to attack, and there is no mercy shown. There is a bit where it's like, why are they rounding up these people and sort of like leading them into this room, into this sort of barn type thing? And then you see them set the thatching alight, and it's like, oh my God, they're burning everybody alive in there. And considering everything else that's going on in Ukraine at the moment, it's sort of like, wow, this, this film has echoes it wasn't even meant to have.
And, you know, so again, I'm, I'm suitably impressed with what's going on there. The other thing that I wanted to discuss is, well, first of all, I mentioned sort of Braveheart and dates. I don't know why early on they have the date 895, when none of this is really happening. What's clever is there isn't exactly magic magic. As I say, when he when he fights this kind of skeleton lord in the in the barrow in in the and this is where you get the barrow whites by the way in lord of the rings is this idea of like having these chambers inside mounds which had burials of like great warriors that's an anglo-saxon thing and a lot of anglo-saxon culture was very heavily leaned on by by tolkien to create the lord of the rings setting so it's a clearly that sort of weird and wonderful but the way it cuts backwards and forwards you don't know whether this is all in his mind or whether he's legendarily doing it. So it's quite clever. Nobody's literally firing fireballs or stuff like that. There is a moment of a Valkyrie. But again, you don't know if this is metaphorical or imagined or whether there's literally a Valkyrie there sort of screaming as they take them to Valhall, which is you know, actually the correct way to say Valhalla. I just love this film, I think you can tell, and please, please, if you are of the age appropriate, and this sounds in any way interesting, support it by going to the movie, all right? I don't have shares in them, I'm just saying. Now, quickly, before I go on to the last bit of this particular episode, as always, look, I chose this one. I went to the movie and went, well, how can I not do an episode on this? But I take requests. I've had people reach out to me. I'm at Jem Deducci on Twitter, so you can feel free to sort of see me there. I'm sure there'll be a link to it underneath this particular podcast. You can say hi. I do say hi back again. But the other thing that's always worth mentioning is please subscribe. Please share this with other people. I'm trying to grow this network, try and get more interest in this podcast. The other podcast I did, Neon, I'm incredibly proud of. I'm doing basically the same thing again. I have a different producer, but Greg is awesome. Oh my God, it's a dream. So if we could get up to 30,000 downloads a month with, with that one, I, well, I mean, we can get to, I don't know, half of that with this one. So please, please do spread the words. I do tweet out what's the new episode's going to be on Twitter. So watch out for that. And it'd be great if you could sort of like it and uh, share it as well. Retweet, retweet it too. Thank you. But then I'm coming to the last bit, the key area about how we get Viking culture. Obviously, we get things like the archaeology. I mentioned the Gokstag Museum, for example. There's our Viking archaeology all across Northern Europe and beyond. With the case of Kiev, the great thing about longships is they were sturdy enough that you could sail all the way to Iceland and beyond to Greenland and indeed North America. How amazing is that? But they were shallow enough to go down rivers like the Volga and the Dnieper. So this is how they ended up in modern-day Ukraine and Kyiv, which is quite a long way away from any oceans. The Black Sea is the closest. So, yes, that's how they did it. They, the, the, they could navigate down the great rivers of Europe and they could also travel across oceans. That's amazing technology. We can find physical evidence, but what were they like? Well, we're lucky enough to have these epic sagas. Now, epic means sort of length. It means that, you know, we're talking this epic poetry, as it's also known, it doesn't rhyme and it's a lot longer than something like Wordsworth's poems that, you know, they are basically short novels, but they are there to have originally been told. This is the thing about Beowulf, the 
oldest story written in what could be considered English. It's very, very old English. It's obviously written in the Scandinavian saga style. And indeed, it's even set in Scandinavia. It's not set in England. But the thing about Beowulf is... Although you can buy a copy now if you want to. There's great ones where on one side you see the original words and on the other side you get it translated. You can't, unless you've got a degree in Anglo-Saxon English, you cannot read it. But occasionally you'll see a word pop up and things like that. And the very first word is HUIT with an exclamation mark. And this has been translated many different ways. But I do like Dr. Yanina Ramirez's interpretation. She is an expert in this area where she goes, look, we can interpret it all we want in the written word. But the point is, you are meant to have said this. This is a performance by a bard, by a sort of like a traveling storyteller. And obviously it's nice and long, so they might get a couple of nights sort of bored and lodging about it. And so, you know, perhaps the best way of saying, oi! You know, listen to me, shut up, I'm about to tell the story. And that, that's kind of what it is. And it's like, great. And, and this is the thing. These things were meant to have been performed. People were meant to sort of gather around the campfire or the communal fire and listen to these things. But they were written down centuries later, not by pagans, but by Christians. Snorri in Iceland is the main concentration of these stories. He's not the only one. But what we don't know, and again, I have mentioned this before, and it is worth thinking, and there is, I don't have an answer for you. You know, you just need to be aware of this. You can argue that this is written by an Icelander who has wonderful fond memories of their grandfather telling them these amazing tales and writing them down with due reverence to this past that has now been forgotten because of Christianity. That's a valid argument. A different argument is these epics are absolutely drenched in blood and thunder and torture and devilryment and all the things that Christianity don't like. And we know that the Vikings obviously did raiding, but has the sheer level of violence been exaggerated by a good Christian to show how barbaric their pagan ancestors were, and therefore how great it is to be Christian in the time of writing. You can see that both those arguments work, but we will never know what was going through any of these chroniclers' minds, and we therefore have to take this with a little pinch of salt, because what we could be doing is a gross injustice to, to Viking culture and things like that. But... If you are going to go all in, then the Northman is absolutely the way to do it. So thank you very much for listening. As always, there'll be another episode coming out soon. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.